0: of Matthew. Matthew chapter 16 verse 21. From that time on Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed on the third day and be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. I tell you the truth. Some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is the Gospel of Christ.
1: Thanks, Carolyn. Uh, Let's pray. My soul finds rest in God alone. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful truth that we just sang of. We thank you that we can sing hallelujah, that in a world where there's so much unrest, so many questions, so much disquiet and discomfort, we can find rest in you because of your Son. And we thank you, Lord, for the, uh, this series in Matthew's Gospel that we've been going through for a while now and the chance that it brings uh, for us to be face-to-face with the Lord Jesus Christ the one who brings a difference to this world, to each of our lives individually. Father, we thank you and we pray that now as we spend some time looking at some some harsh words that he said, some odd words that he said, that you would use them to instruct our hearts and minds today. May they speak afresh to us by your spirit. May they help us love you more and serve you more faithfully. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Very good to be with you. I wonder if you can uh, think back to a time when you said something to someone innocently, when you said something to someone meaning well, only to have them react totally different than you were expecting, to have them blow up or turn on you in anger. And you're left thinking, well, where did that come from? Uh, I'm not talking about during an argument where you might expect that to happen. I'm not talking about when you deliberately stirred the pot and tried to get a response or a reaction. But when you said something well-intentioned, when you said something serious and the response you got was not at all what was expected. I'm sure all of us can relate to that situation. I'm hoping we can, otherwise it's just me. But I get this absolutely. And you end up thinking, well, what's going on here? Did I hit a nerve? Is this a particularly sore spot? Uh, are they having a bad day? Are they just going through something and I wasn't aware of it and it's caused this? Did they misunderstand what I was saying and they've jumped to some different conclusion? Well, this morning we see an exchange which must have left Peter feeling very much like this. Our verses today, we're carrying on in the series in Matthew. If you're visiting us this morning, you're very welcome here, but you're jumping into a series that we've been going through for a while. Our verses go all the way through to verse 28, but I'm only going to look up to verse 23 today. Don't worry, I'm not going to miss anything out. We'll pick it up next week and we'll look at the verses that we are not covering today. But there's so much going on in these verses There's a lot going on in just three verses of Matthew's gospel here because we see Peter say something which caused Jesus to respond in a way that we don't normally see in the gospels. Peter has clearly riled Jesus up in some sense. It's an extraordinary few verses. I cannot think of another time where you see the Lord Jesus speak so harshly. And what makes it so surprising, so astonishing, so unexpected is that the words, these harsh words aren't aimed at the Pharisees, which he's got into a number of battles with up until this time. They're not aimed at demon-possessed people where we might expect it. They're not aimed at the people that Matthew has been telling us have been plotting against Jesus and wanting to see him put to death. They're aimed at Peter. Peter, probably the closest of the Lord Jesus' disciples. Certainly top three, right? Would everyone agree top three? Peter, James and John are right up there. Peter, who, if you were here last week, got things extraordinarily right. Jesus asked a question and Peter was the one who got it right. And then Jesus after that said, you're the one on whom I'm going to build my church that same Peter is now, in only a few verses' time, on the receiving end of some of the strongest, most confronting, most offensive words of Jesus. Look at verse 23. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Incredible words. Not the kind of words that you would expect Jesus to say easily or lightly and certainly not to Peter. Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. I asked before whether you've ever had that situation where you say something and the response is so different. I wonder whether you've ever received unkind words from someone that you admire and love and you care what they think about you. It can be very painful. You really want to look good in their eyes, and you get a, a very different response than the one expected. Surely, this to the nth degree is what Peter was feeling right here. Perhaps he thought Jesus was going to respond with thanks, or, you know, thanks for thinking of me, Peter, or appreciation or support. Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. So, I think the question's pretty obvious. What was Peter's mistake? What had Peter done or said that was so dreadful, so out of line, so wrong, that Jesus uses a force and a language that we don't typically see from him? Well, let's have a look at the verses and see what we find. But actually, I actually want us to, uh, to understand our verses. I want to briefly remind us of last week's passage. In particular, the last verse from last week's passage. Don't put it up yet, Jacob, but we will in a moment. I don't want to ruin this. Did he put it up? Jacob, you're fired. Get out, Jacob. He's blown the surprise. The spoiler alert has come. But I didn't mention the last verse from last week's passage, deliberately, because I think it feeds into this one. And you won't know what that last verse is, because you've never seen it just a few moments ago. But let me just remind you of the passage from last week. Last week, Jesus had asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Jesus was becoming a big deal. Lots of people were saying, who is this guy? And Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And the disciples came up with a few options. Well, some people say you're John the Baptist back from the dead. Some people say you're Elijah. Some people say you're Jeremiah. Some some of the other prophets. But Jesus then went further. He said, don't worry about them. What about you? Who do you say that I am? And I said last week, For those who are here, you'll remember, I said, this is the most critical question you will ever be asked, and you will be asked it. Every single person will be. Who do you say that Jesus is? And your answer to that question is more important, more vital than any other question you'll ever be asked in your life. Every other question pales into insignificance next to the importance of that one. It's more important than will you take Jamie to be your wife? More important than, will you take the vaccine? More important than, who will you vote for? Who will you say Jesus Christ is? And wonderfully, as Jesus asks this very important question, Peter got it right. Peter Gets it absolutely spot on. He hits it out of the park. He said, if you remember, you are the Christ. And we looked last week at the fact that Christ wasn't Jesus' surname. Christ was a title. It was talking about the promised king from the Old Testament. There was a king promised in the Old Testament who one day would come and he would save God's people and rule God's people forever. The Old Testament promised about the Christ at a few places throughout it. And so the Jews were always on the lookout for this Christ. When will he come? This great figure that they were all hoping for, all waiting for, who would do these things, save God's people and rule them forever. And Peter says, Jesus, that's who you are. You're that guy, the one we've all been waiting for. And it's a great moment. I said it was a watershed moment in Matthew's Gospel because for 16 chapters up until this point, not one person has worked out that Jesus is the Christ. But here, finally, someone gets it. Peter gets it right. He says, you are the Christ. But then came the last verse, which I didn't talk about last week, and I can reveal it now. (laughs) Jacob. Verse 30 said, Then Jesus warned his disciples not to tell anyone he was the Christ. What? That's a very odd verse. Joel said at the beginning of the service, some of our young adult women are away this weekend. They're having a a weekend away and uh, good on them. One of them, Lindsay, came up to me straight after the service and said, Joe, I've got a question for you. Why on earth did Jesus tell his disciples not to tell anyone he was the Christ? What a great question from last week. She was the only one. Hands up, everyone else who was here. No. Uh, It is very strange. If knowing who Jesus is, if knowing Jesus is the Christ and therefore believing that Jesus is the Christ is the key to Christianity, then I would expect that last verse to go, Jesus told his disciples to go out and tell everyone that he was the Christ so that they could believe in him. But he doesn't. Instead, just at the moment where they finally get it right, they work out who he is, he warns them not to tell anyone who he is. Why? Well, the reason I didn't look at it last week is, this week, these verses in this passage, I think, explain exactly why Jesus warned them not to do it. Let's keep reading from our verses, verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. You can read it and think, well, isn't Jesus overstating things a little bit here? I mean, Peter's taken him aside. It's not like he's trying to publicly embarrass him. He takes Jesus aside. And although it says Peter is rebuking Jesus, it's clear why he's doing it. He's doing it for Jesus' good, he loves Jesus. He wants the best for Jesus. He's caring for him, looking out for him. So why this response? Why the harshness, the abruptness? Well, as you can imagine with Jesus, it's none of the things that I mentioned at the beginning when we say something and then there's this odd response. It's not like uh, Peter caught Jesus on a bad day and this was an overreaction. It's not like Jesus was misunderstanding what was going on. In fact, he knows far more than Peter what's going on. So why? Notice how Peter's gone from last week saying exactly the right thing to this week apparently saying exactly the wrong thing. He's gone from correctly identifying you are the Christ to finding saying words that find him linked to Satan. Poor Peter. From champ to chump in only a few verses. Hero to zero. Foot firmly inserted in mouth as you quite often find with Peter. What had he done wrong? Well friends, Peter had completely misunderstood The nature and purpose of being the Christ. And therefore, in the process, he shows why Jesus had warned the disciples not to tell anyone he was the Christ yet. Because Peter, along with all the disciples, along with all the Jewish people, were waiting for a particular kind of Christ. When they heard of the Christ, they had a particular image in mind. And the image they had in mind was someone like King David. They knew that the Christ was going to be related to King David and they expected a figure like King David, a warrior who would come in and lead the revolt against anyone who was oppressing the Jewish people, in this case the Romans. They had in mind a a physical king who would come in and rescue them physically, free the Jews, restore Israel and give control of their land. In other words, they had in mind a mighty figure who would win a mighty battle. A kind of all black on horseback, that's what I described them as. The Christ in their mind was going to rescue God's people and rule forever. And so people were expecting someone physically, who would, they were looking for a hero with swagger and skills and size and speed and, and expecting an incredible physical victory. But at the very moment that Jesus was announced as the Christ, he went on to explain what the Christ would do. And what did he say? He said that the Christ must suffer, must die. Now he also said he'd rise again but I reckon they couldn't get past the first two. The Christ must suffer and die? The Christ must be rejected? Peter couldn't comprehend this how could this be how could the one who's promised as God's ultimate king and rescuer who's going to save God's people and rule God's people forever how could that one be rejected and suffer and die Peter couldn't wrap his mind around it he couldn't fathom it and if Peter can't Jesus' closest companion, the one who knows Jesus better than anyone and has heard his ministry and seen the things he did, then imagine how those who don't know Jesus as well would react. They would never have been able to accept that he was a different Christ than they had thought. That's the reason why the disciples would have remained silent about Jesus' identity because no one would understand it until after the resurrection. They would have been pushing him, trying to force him all the time to be the all black on horseback. You can see it in John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, after the feeding of the 5,000, what's the way the people responded straight away to Jesus and what he'd done? They tried to force him to be king. That's what it says in John chapter 6. But he'd come for a different reason. Not to win this incredible battle with the Romans and free people in that way. The mission of the Christ was to win a war but it wasn't a a physical war. It was a war against sin and death. And he did come to win a victory, but it wasn't a victory of battles with people left strewn on the battleground. It wasn't a victory won by smashing the opposition, but by surrendering himself, dying on the cross in our place and rising three days later. The Christ had a cross-shaped mission, and no one back then could understand that. They had these expectations and the reality was so much different. They would never have been able to understand it until afterwards when they'd seen Jesus die on the cross and then seen him conquer death and realized that he wasn't just saving God's people physically, he was saving them spiritually and eternally. Peter knew Jesus was the Christ, but he didn't yet understand the cross-shaped mission of the Christ. Once you see that, once we understand that truth from these passages, uh, this passage, I think there's two very small but very significant implications for us. The first is, don't get the cross wrong. Don't get the cross wrong. Do you see how important it is from these verses? Jesus never responds like this, but Peter had got the, the one thing wrong you can't get wrong. The Christ must suffer and die. Jesus uses such strong language here because the one thing as a Christian we don't want to muck up or misunderstand is the mission of the Christ. He had to die for you and for me. And it's great that he did. He had to rise back to life because Jesus didn't just come to make you and I feel better in life. He didn't just come to give us a boost in certain areas. He didn't just come to set us a good example of how to live. He came to save you and I from our sin and from death. And to do that, he had to do this. And I point that out because sometimes people subtly, not not always deliberately, but it's like they try to hijack the purpose of Jesus. They find the cross a little bit distasteful so they minimise it. Or they find the topic of sin and forgiveness a little negative, so they play it down. We don't get the luxury of choosing what the Christ's mission was. He tells us what it was. And he said the Son of Man must suffer and die and rise. That was his purpose. It was his central purpose, his main mission. It was the thing he said here he must do. Peter was spoken to so seriously Because he'd made a mistake on the exact subject that is most serious. Peter said and did worse things at one level. He betrayed Jesus three times just before his death. He never gets spoken to like this. And all the other mistakes that Peter made. Because misunderstanding this, the heart of the Christ's mission, is the most important thing we need to get right the very reason Jesus came it was the very heart of who he was and why he came it's the very core of what what we do when we gather together how many times already this morning have we sung of the Lord Jesus Christ giving his life it's what we remember as next week we share the bread and the wine remembering his sacrifice for us that mission is the very center of the majesty the grace the love of God so please remember it let's not muck it up or get it twisted The Christ must suffer, die, and rise. So that's the first one. We don't want to muck that up. Second one, uh, and I hope I I can explain this the right way because I know what I mean in my heart and I haven't been able to find the words to say it. Second uh, implication, rejoice in Jesus, your wonderful saviour. Let me explain why why I'm saying this as a response to these verses. Rejoice in Jesus, your wonderful saviour. Why did Jesus say, get behind me, Satan? Satan. I hope I've explained why he did it in terms of the importance of the issue. We can understand that. But why Satan? Get behind me, Satan. It seems overkill. It seems strong. Well, what's Satan's main characteristic in the scriptures? He's the tempter. He's the deceiver. He's the one who tempts us to sin. And I want you to see very clearly Peter was here, in a sense, tempting Jesus. What was he tempting him with? not going through with the cross. He pulled him aside to say, not you. You never have to do that. Jesus had just said, I must suffer, must be betrayed, must die. Not you, definitely not you. He was tempting Jesus to not go through with the cross. And I want you to know, this was a real uh, and strong temptation for Jesus. The book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus was tempted in every way as you and I were. But I think, personally, this is my own personal thought, I think this was the temptation for Jesus to not go through with the cross. Remember what he prayed the night before he died? He knew he was about to go to the cross and all alone, as the rest of his disciples slept, he went down on his knees and he prayed, Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but your will be done. He wanted the cup gone at one level. Peter was offering him here the one thing that he probably wanted most, to not go through with the cross. The cross was not something that Jesus wanted to do. It was something he could be tempted to avoid. But he would not. Because for Jesus there were two priorities. Not my will, but your will. And because of his love for you and I. He would not not do that because of his love for you and me. The Christ had to die for you and I. When Jesus prayed, if it's possible, take this cup from me. If it was possible, any other way for you and I to receive what Jesus' death achieved, the Father would have jumped at it and the cup would have gone and he wouldn't have gone to the cross. If you could be saved and forgiven and made a child of God by believing in something else or by trying harder or by your performance or by bartering or bluffing or any other way, Jesus would not have gone to the cross for you and I. He would never have gone to it. He went for two reasons, because there was no other way and because he loves you. The harsh words of Jesus here shows how realistic this temptation was for Jesus, how attractive or seductive it was for him, how easy it would have been for him to go down that line. But he loves you so much he wouldn't succumb to it. He loves you so much he wouldn't choose to do anything else except go to the cross. If you ever doubt that Jesus loves you, remember what he did for you on the cross. And more than that, remember how tempted he was not to go through with it, but he did it for you and I. Jesus knew the cost. He knew the price. But he loves you and I so much, he willingly went through it for us. You are a stumbling block to me, Jesus said to Peter, because Peter was tempting him. But Jesus loves you and I so much, he would not stumble. He would not turn. He would not not take the cup. He would not not suffer or die. Rejoice in your wonderful Saviour. These verses remind us that our Saviour walked the walk. He took the hit for us, the cup for us. He paid the price and faced forsakenness for us. I pray we rejoice in him. I love the uh, the Queen. A bit controversial to say that at the moment, but uh, I love the Queen. I'm not ashamed to say it publicly. And uh, over recent days, in the light of behaviour of other royals I find myself loving the Queen even more her dignity and resolve the way she gets on with things and doesn't whine uh, I love her but as great as she is she rules from a distance and apparently she doesn't even know I exist (laughs) but I don't just have a Queen I have a King I have a King and he didn't keep his distance he came down And he stood in my place, paying a price I could never pay. And he doesn't just know I exist. He rescued me. He saved me. He forgave me. He made me his father's son. And he will hold on to me until one day I'm back with him. That same king did that for you. Rejoice in him. Thank him. Trust him. Live for him. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that even in these harsh words of the Lord Jesus, we see a wonderful truth that makes all the difference. We thank you for your son, your wonderful son, our wonderful saviour and wonderful king who went to the cross for us and wouldn't be tempted to do anything else. We thank you for the difference it makes in our lives, the difference it makes for eternity. And we pray that more and more people would come to know him and what he's done for them and also know him as their king. And we pray this in his name. Amen.